Welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nap Nasworth. I've been exploring the intersection of churches, Christians, theology, and public life for over 20 years as both a professor and a journalist. But I still have lots of questions. I invite you to continue learning with me as I interview interesting voices in this field. For women who do not follow those rules, if they are not properly feminine, properly modest, or um, properly submissive, then they are deemed outside of masculine protection. They have placed themselves outside of that protection, and therefore, they don't deserve protection, and they kind of are going to get what they deserve. My guest today is Kristen Dumay, professor of history at Calvin University. She has a bachelor's in history and German from Dort College and a PhD in American history, specialized in women's history and religious history from Notre Dame University. Her most recent book, which we'll be discussing, is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And then introduction, she writes, quote, but evangelical support for Trump was no aberration, nor was it merely a pragmatic choice. It was, rather, the culmination of evangelicals' embrace of militant masculinity, an an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power at home and abroad. Professor Dumay, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so tell me, where where did you first get the ideas for this book, and how did the book come together? So this book started more than 15 years ago. Uh, it was uh, it was actually my students at Calvin who brought uh, the subject to my attention. I had been lecturing in a course, a uh, U.S. history course, on Teddy Roosevelt. And I uh, was using that to show how ideas of gender and masculinity could be linked to broader issues, uh, to uh, Uh, foreign policy into ideas of the nation. And after that class, a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor DeMay, there's this book that you really need to read. And the book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And uh, they thought of me because uh, Eldridge loves Teddy Roosevelt. He opens his own book, Wild at Heart, with a quote from Roosevelt. And my students were right. There were very similar dynamics going on in terms of a kind of militant, muscular Christianity that was being promoted. And um, they just thought I should know that. I was, of course, immediately intrigued. And this was in around 2005, 2006. And um, this was at the time of the Iraq War, when we were also seeing white evangelicals as real outliers in terms of support for the Iraq War, support for um, preemptive war, aggressive foreign policy generally, and even uh, in things like condoning the use of torture. And so I started to really look and ask myself how ideas of gender in that moment, in the the early 2000s, might also be linked to broader political issues, including uh, foreign policy. So that was actually the beginning of this research. And then I set it aside for a time for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I uh, it was really disturbing the the materials that I was I was. Uh, encountering, and I wasn't sure I had the stomach for it um, at that point. And uh, more importantly, it was really hard for me to figure out how mainstream this ideology was. 
And um, so I, I meant to come back to it at some point, set it aside. And then it was in the fall of 2016 that I decided to dust off that old research and um, see if I could make better sense of it in this moment. Okay. So you started writing it in 2016. And when did you finish writing it? Uh, well, actually, I, um, you know, I got the idea. I, I wrote an essay that was published to the uh, time to the inauguration, so in early 2017. And the response to that uh, that article actually made me uh, decide to <laughs> to turn it into a book. And I uh, did a lot more research the next year, and then really started writing in earnest in 2018. And I think start to finish about 18 months um, to write the text. So it was it was very quick, at least for me as a historian. And um, but but we knew that it, it really needed to be out. Um, it needed to be out this summer. So that that's the the timing here is interesting because the Me Too movement began in uh, yeah. October of 2017. Yeah, and then. Yeah. And then the church two movement began slowly after that. And then 2018, that was just a huge year for the church two movement. Lots mm-hmm. of scandals coming out and lots of, you know, pastors resigning over things that were happening. Yes. So you were writing this book while all that was going on, right? Exactly. And, you know, in, in the proposal already, I had sketched out a chapter where I knew I needed to include that because in the the time between when I first started researching this topic, you know, 2005, 2006, in that time when I just set it aside, I uh, I continued to to gather materials. I continued to watch many of the, the kind of main characters from uh, my research and I was shocked to see one after another of these guys that I had been following because of the way they were promoting a very militant masculinity to see them become implicated either directly or indirectly in sex abuse scandals. And so I was tracking this for years. And in fact, <laughs> when I finally decided to write a, this book, it was before Me Too Church 2 had happened. And so one of the first things I did was consult with a lawyer to see how much of the materials I could use uh, because at that point, they were all out on blogs um, that, uh, in terms of sexual abuse in evangelical organizations and communities. And I knew that needed to be a part of the story. And uh, sure enough, within months, uh, that, that material was taken from blogs, the, the victims and victim advocates who had been uh, working to, to tell these stories were able to tell them to national media and then it became it became the national story that we now know as me too and church too yeah so it was it was the bravery of a lot of these women and uh and other victims who came forward that really helped spur along your book you would say uh, well, you know, I, it certainly made it easier for me to to write with less liability once I could I could cite published news sources, but it was it was their bravery that that really um, you know made the movement happen uh, because for the longest time, victims did not think anyone would believe them. And the victims who did uh, go public paid incredible costs for doing so within their their sometimes their own families, their communities, their churches. And um, I think it was uh, so. It took incredible bravery to to uh, come forward with their stories in previous years, uh, and then with me too in church too. Uh, that was so critical. And and what really changed then was I think that the idea that 
victims might be believed. And then we, we kind of see this, this avalanche of, of reports and the stories just coming out into the open. So yeah, their bravery uh, made it easier in some ways for me to write this book, but their bravery really made the, the whole moment happen. And it, it was in- enormously significant. Is, is there anything about evangelical culture in particular that makes it more difficult for women to come forward in those situations? Yeah, so th- there are different ways of kind of thinking about this. On on the one hand, you know, you'll definitely run into evangelicals themselves, uh, conservative evangelicals, who will very quickly point out, you know, well, what about Bill Hybels? And what about Harvey Weinstein? And what about Bill Cosby, right? So it's not just us, which means it's not our problem. It's not a conservative evangelical problem. It's just a um, a guy thing or, you know, or, or whatever. Um, but I, in, in looking at these stories and, um, I, I'm not sure that this ideology like creates abusers. I don't know that that's how abuse necessarily works. Uh, but it does not restrain abusers very well. And, uh, I was especially attentive to how it affected victims, uh, that there was a strong tendency within uh, kind of evangelical understandings of masculinity and femininity to um, place the responsibility for sexual purity on women and to um, understand that or to suggest that men have um, a more difficult time kind of controlling their sexual appetites. They're filled with testosterone, they're aggressive. And so it's, it's really on women, which means when a man steps out of line, then, uh, you know, yeah, he shouldn't have done that. But there's often a woman who gets blamed. So maybe he, his wife wasn't fulfilling his needs, or maybe the woman was not just modestly enough. And so I think that there, there is that dynamic. And then there are also within patriarchal uh, circles, uh, a tendency to protect the leader, to protect the patriarch, because the feeling that in doing so, you can protect the witness of the church. And I think these two tendencies come up over and over again in the cases that I researched, where uh, bystanders, where where family members, where church members would, would cover for the perpetrator because they didn't want to hurt his witness and the witness of, of Christ, as they put it. And they would very frequently end up blaming women, blaming the victims. And that's very much in keeping with this ideology. And we can see patterns of that going back decades. And they will write in ways that, you know, in books on sexuality, books on gender, that very much reinforce this framing. Okay, let, let's talk about Trump. So I related a lot to a lot of what you were writing about, sort of the never Trumpers, where at first, you know, we were thinking, well, it's not true evangelicals who are supporting Trump, you know, and I even wrote things to the effect of, you know, evangelicals in names only, I use that phrase, to describe the types of people who were supporting Trump in in the primary. Then we got closer to the election, and election day came, and it's like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Why, Why are so many white evangelicals supporting Trump? Oh, but, you know, it was just an anti-Hillary vote. They can't right. really be supporting him, right? And then now we're almost four years into his presidency, and now it's white evangelicals have become his greatest defenders and basically would defend even some of his worst impulses. And, uh, you know, and, and and so I'm tr- I'm trying to make a lot of sense of that. Mm-hmm. You know, coming from my perspective, I'm uh, my background is my – 
uh, PhDs in political science. I look at, at that and I see partisanship mm-hmm. and groupish behavior. And, and, and that's my answer when people mm-hmm. ask me, you know, why are so many evangelicals supporting Trump? But I read your book and you have a different perspective. I do. And, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so what's your answer? Why are evangelicals supporting Trump? White evangelicals? Sure. Well, first, I mean, partisanship is a factor, right? The, the, I think that there are many factors that that come together. Um, and and yes, not all evangelicals were sold on Trump during the primary season, but more than many people realize were. And so so I, I think, you know, just to complicate that narrative a little bit, and I think there was also a, the issue of uh, lack of trust up front. You know, initially, a lot of evangelicals like the rest of us didn't really know what to make of this guy. You know, what what, what was he going to be? Uh, you know, very recently he was pro-choice. Was he really going to be pro-life? You know, what w- was he trustworthy? I think the 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 longer he was around the more people began to trust that he would defend the positions that that he said he would uh, to curry their favor and um and honestly through the through the primaries uh when there were many uh, very conservative, strong Republican choices. Uh, already then, you saw you saw evangelicals really um, starting to back Trump, and um, and and also Cruz, who actually I would suggest is of, of all of the other candidates had the most in common with Trump in in, in terms of his kind of aggressive, uh, patriarchal authority. Um, his his militant masculinity. Uh, so why did they end up supporting Trump? Uh, if you if you look to the history of white evangelicalism, you'll see, especially conservative white evangelicalism here, uh, y- you see the development of um, a, a a kind of um, notion of Christian manhood that really emphasizes the protection, that God ordained men to be protectors of their homes, of their churches, and of this nation, of America, of Christian America. And this really um, um, comes to the, the forefront uh, of, of evangelicalism as in the, in the 1960s and 1970s during the Cold War, right at the moment, they're really starting to coalesce as a political, as a partisan political movement. And so this idea of, you know, God made men to be strong protectors and defenders was, was at the heart of kind of family values evangelicalism and this, this culture wars Christianity. And so if you kind of extend that through time, as, as I do in the book, you can see how over and over again, this idea of an us versus them, we have a battle to fight. Every man has a battle to fight and the ends will justify the means. Violence is necessary to achieve order. And you can see that kind of morph in and out of history. But by the early 2000s, after 9-11 in particular, um, you see this widespread embrace of precisely this sort of militant masculine protector. And and by the early 2000s, we see that things like crassness, uh, even misogyny, somebody like Mark Driscoll, for example, uh, does not disqualify a man. In fact, it can be a sign that he is filled with this aggression that just needs to be channeled in the right direction. And, and so that is a common motif in conservative white evangelicalism throughout the 2000s. Uh, the presidency of, of Barack Obama was, was seen as a time when um, 
uh, evangelicals really needed to respond, to fight, to kind of regain the country, to regain control. And uh, they were looking for a new protector and for somebody who would really fight for them. And that's exactly what Donald Trump said he would do. And he was crass and he was cruel. And those were were the attributes that would, would actually enable him to do so. Yes. And I think your book does a really good job of making that case. And uh, so if, if anyone's interested, um, you know, I would encourage you to pick up the book. Uh, but it's not just about Trump. You know, it's something no. broader than that. But it does sort of, it feels to me like it sort of builds to that, uh, at least from my perspective, of yeah. uh, making that case for why uh, evangelicals would support Trump. You know, it's a multi-dimensional problem, many different sides to it, but I think you offer a perspective that is uh, different than others I've heard and definitely worth considering and listening to. Thanks. Yeah. And and when I first started this research, of course, I had no idea that it would culminate in Donald Trump as president and as this champion of white evangelicals. Uh, but but once you you trace the history, you will see echoes of of this. You will see kind of uh, you know, harbingers of 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 where where we are now um, throughout the story. And sometimes the similarities really are striking. One thing though that still confuses me about Trump uh, that. I hear all the time that's it's it's in your book and also I hear all the time from his supporters is this notion that Donald Trump represents manliness and he's a man's man and he's masculine. Yeah. And I see Trump and he's he's whiny and he's like child childlike and he's very yeah. thin skinned. I mean, yeah. does that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah, this is this is good and there's some debates and I mean one thing uh to keep in mind is that um um, I mean, ideas of masculinity are are always in flux, and and they can change over time. And what uh, what once really counted as masculinity, this kind of stoicism, right? This quiet um, um, power. Uh, in fact, you know, John Wayne arguably was more of that type. Um, uh, you know, uh, not not whiny, uh, stoic, and you know, would use use force as needed when necessary. Um, and, and that was, that was for a long time, this kind of model of noble masculinity. Uh, but again, things have changed. And, uh, especially in the last couple of decades, um, as, as a kind of backlash against feminism and more recently against, you know, political correctness. This idea that to be a man, um, a truly masculine man, uh, means that you're not going to conform to political correctness. You're not going to be proper. You're going. You're going to break these these um, rules. And uh, you know, not that everybody thinks whining is the best way to be a man, but you're not playing by the rules of of civilized society necessarily. You're you're not afraid to shake things up. You're going to say what needs to be said, and you're going to do what needs to be done. And and this is this is kind of part of this. Um, uh, backlash masculinity in, in some ways that, um, you know, trespassing that, 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 uh, you know, going against 
polite norms is a mark of courage and is a mark of true masculinity. You haven't been um, emasculated. You haven't been feminized. Uh, because what we see happening in, in these conversations is kind of virtues like self-restraint and kindness and gentleness and goodness um, get defined as feminine attributes. So those are great for the ladies. Uh, but but if, if you're a man, you are called to lead. And those are not the attributes that will create a strong leader. And so, so it really is a kind of reaction against um, this kind of self-restraint as part of masculinity and embrace of, of something much more reckless and aggressive. And, and Trump models some of that, right? You know, um, and, but he really gets the, you know, he's not politically correct. Nothing's going to keep him from saying what he wants to say and doing what he thinks needs to be done. And he does not follow the rules of civilized society. And in that many see, you know, he's, he's the guy who's going to, who's going to get it done even better than Christians who have been shaped more by these traditional virtues. They don't have the fight in them that's needed for this moment. Yeah, so let me just uh, give you a few things that Trump has said this week <laughs> and just get your like immediate off the head reaction to, you know, what you're oh, hearing. Okay. 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 So uh, this morning he called Mika Brzezinski Scarborough a quote, ditzy airhead wife. Yes. He, he called Kamala Harris a mad woman. Yep. And Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, he said, was a poor student. And quote, this is not even a smart person other than she's got a good line of stuff. I mean, she goes out and she yaps. These guys, they're all afraid of her. And let me just add that what he said about uh, her uh, student being a student, that's not true. She graduated with honors from Boston University. Yeah. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So extremely misogynistic. All right. And, and um, now... <laughs> Evangelicals talk a lot about um, valuing women and protecting women. And there is truth to that, but uh, women need to follow certain rules to be awarded that protection. So they need to fulfill their roles. They need to be properly feminine. And uh, within this framework, that involves properly submitting to patriarchal authority, submitting to men. For women who do not follow those rules, if they are not properly feminine, properly modest, or um, properly submissive, then they are deemed outside of masculine protection. They have placed themselves outside of that protection, and therefore, they don't deserve protection, and they kind of are going to get what they deserve. And so, if, if you take that model, and again, not every evangelical um, practices this in the way that Trump does, but there, there are some affinities here, that for women who step out of their place, for women who do not follow the rules of, quote unquote, biblical womanhood, um, proper femininity, then, um, yeah, they they need to be put back in their place, and they do not deserve uh, deference, respect, or um, I mean, at, at all, really. And, and they're going to deserve deserve what they have. They're going to get what they have coming. Uh, and so, so there is um, definitely that strand. That's kind of the the dark side of this. You know, we will protect women only certain women and only under certain conditions. So. One of the things I see you sort of struggling with in this book, and it's an issue I've struggled with as well, is 
what what is the fringe versus what is like the mainstream of evangelicalism exactly and yeah and so uh you know and and this is something that came up a lot when uh, i worked at the christian post and we were often criticized for you know that's just the fringe why are you covering that but the but the what we're covering may be the pastor of a mega church or or maybe a youtuber with a million yes followers you know so you know what what is considered the fringe versus what is considered the mainstream i mean the, I've, my eyes have really been opened on this issue especially since trump because what i consider the mainstream maybe isn't so mainstream <laughs> after all and there's a lot of fringe that adds up to a big bigger group than what i consider to be the mainstream you know so yes. so talk a little bit about how you sort of uh, struggle through with that issue Oh, that is exactly right. And that is, that is the, what I was wrestling with through this book, you know, even from its inception when I was, you know, years ago trying to say, is this fringe? You know, am I going to be shining this bright spotlight on the dark underbelly of white evangelicalism, you know, by, by, you know, airing the dirty laundry? Is that, is that, do we really need that? Um, and obviously the, the last four years have really kind of shifted our framing. I think for many of us who have been close observers or of evangelicalism and for many evangelicals themselves. So in the past, um, ev- Certain respectable evangelical leaders like to think of themselves at the center of mainstream evangelicalism. So thinking of you know, Christianity Today crowd, maybe Wheaton College and, um, you know, somebody like Russell Moore and, uh, you know, Ed Setzer. And you, there's a whole list of, you know, kind of influential, uh, respectable evangelicals. And then there's there's the rest, and there always have been. You have the televangelists. You you know you have the religious right. You have the um uh you you've got the the homeschool crowd over on on one side. You've got um, independent funda- fundamental Baptist networks. You've got how do these pieces fit together, and where is the mainstream, and where is the fringe? And I think that um, first of all, I think that we have long had a, a misconception um, of of where the mainstream actually is and where the center of that is, largely because um, usually it was powerful white evangelical men who were weighing in on where the center was, and, and they seemed to think that they were occupying the center. Um, and uh, I think we really missed a lot of the more populist dynamics within white evangelicalism. And we missed the power that the more conservative corners of evangelicalism were able to wield. And so one of the things I try to do in this book is really just kind of map out what is the evangelical movement? What are the different pieces? How do they connect to each other? And we aren't just left with a kind of kaleidoscope image where there's all sorts of very different things and we're all, we're going to, you know, hold them together and call them evangelicalism. Instead, it, I really tried to look at how is power wielded through these networks, through these alliances? How are boundaries drawn and who has the power to draw them? Who has the power to place somebody outside and and to define others in? Um, and, and so I was working with some amazing research assistants uh, in, in researching this book. And one of the things that we did is we had these huge sheets of butcher paper and sticky notes and Sharpies. And we were, we were literally mapping out the evangelical 
world and drawing lines to show connections um, between different people, organizations, institutions, churches, parachurches. Um, so, so that was part of this project. And then we were understanding, you know, who's really in charge here? And sure, the editor of Christianity Today has some power. Uh, the Christian Post has some power, um, but Lifeway Christian Books also has an awful lot of power, right? In the SBC, um, the Gospel Coalition has a lot of power. And how are they wielding that power? Um, who are they, um, you know, kind of partnering with? And then who are they saying, nope, you're on the outs? And and that's really, a, that, that's, a, that's a subtext of this entire book is just trying to connect what is fringe, what is mainstream, what is the connection relationship between them? And then ultimately, what is, what is white evangelicalism? Um, uh, what are we looking at? And that's exactly as, as you suggested, what we once maybe discounted as fringe has moved much closer to the center. And those who once thought they were leaders of um, mainstream evangelicalism find out that they have far fewer followers than they ever imagined. Hmm. And, and what's your faith background? Oh, it's always uh, a bit of a long story. Uh, I would say evangelical adjacent. Uh, I can't just say, oh, I was an evangelical. This is my story. I actually grew up in a small town in Iowa that was uh, Dutch immigrant culture. And um, so I grew up in a little Christian reformed enclave. Uh, and so I, um, you know, I, I, I didn't consider myself evangelical. I, uh, my dad was a pastor and the a theology professor. And so I got a lot of, you know, big dose of a pretty pure Dutch reformed theology growing up. And so that was, you know, mostly my identity. That said, you know, we had one bookstore in town and it was a Christian bookstore. I listened to Christian radio. I only listened to Christian contemporary music. And in the book, too, I, I really emphasize the role of evangelical popular culture in shaping an identity and in shaping a movement. And in that respect, I participated in this kind of popular evangelical culture. But I always had one foot kind of in this um, Dutch Reformed tradition that I think has given me a little bit more of a critical vantage point, And I haven't ever wholly identified as evangelical. And today I'm, I teach at a Christian university in the Reformed tradition, and I attend a Christian Reformed church. Uh, so Mark Tooley, the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, wrote a blog post recently. I don't know if you saw it. I did. But he, um, yeah, so he mentions your book as well as uh, some other books that he says is demonizing evangelicals. Oh, I need to and, look that up. How did I miss that <laughs> alert? Okay. I didn't think Mark Tooley would like this book, to be honest. So go on. <laughs> Yeah, so I just w wanted to get your reaction to that. Do you feel like you're demonizing evangelicals? Um, I mean, the subtitle does invite that interpretation. So, um, uh, you know, I will concede that point. Um, I have not gotten that response, frankly, from dozens and dozens of readers so far who identify as evangelical, who who have grown up in the evangelical tradition. Uh, I think I received by now more than 150 letters, um, gorgeous, heartfelt letters responding to this book um, by people um, who are making sense of their own um, participation in this movement. And I think um, what they are saying is this simply is helping them understand, as, as one letter writer wrote, 
Uh, I bumped into a lot of these trees, but I never saw the forest until now. Um, and 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 some some form of that is is a theme in almost every letter I get. And so it it really is an exercise in self understanding. But yes, it is it is a critical history, and um, and the subtitle reflects that there is a lot of. Um, I think troubling material here. It is a difficult book to read in that respect. There are some heavy chapters. Um, but I think that as a person of faith myself and as a white Christian, and somebody definitely um, deeply influenced by conservative white Christianity and in some ways evangelicalism, I think it's, it is um, the responsibility of all of us to be very introspective in this particular moment. Uh, we can have um, a, a kind of idealized understanding of our own faith and put the loveliest side forward and um, and say that that's really who we are. But I think that, and here I'll say as a historian and as a cultural historian, as somebody who's very attentive to questions of power, um, to questions of racial identity and oppression, that um, I think we we have to be willing to take a more critical look at our own history, at how what we call just, you know, plain old Christianity, faithful, Bible-centered Christianity is, uh, in fact, um, has been uh, essentially a, a white religious identity, even if we call it just plain old Christianity, very distinct from the um, tradition of black Protestantism in this country, um, not just with regard to political issues, but many um, spiritual emphases as well. And that it has, in fact, been complicit in white supremacy, um, to use strong words, but um, and in the oppression of, of many other communities. And when we look at survey data, we can see, again, white evangelicals are consistent outliers on issues of you know, welcoming immigrants, welcoming refugees even now, which goes against, I think, a lot of evangelical self-understanding as being, being very hospitable. Um, in, in terms of um, Islamophobia, in terms of embracing, again, aggressive foreign policy, being pro-war, uh, pro-torture, all of these things. These are things that I think we really need to take a hard look at and ask us and ask individually and collectively, is this consistent with the gospel that we profess and with the heart of biblical teaching? Or... Um, um, you know, it is has something gone astray, and and I'm definitely in the moment where, as I think we all should be, asking how we've gotten to this point, and if this is really where we want to be, as um as as the Church of Christ in this country. And what's your next book? <laughs> uh, I'm not quite. We're deciding between two books, and I hope to be able to announce that um, before too long. Okay. And uh, how can people follow you? Uh, you have, you're on Twitter and you have a website. So what are those? Yeah. Uh, so I'm on Twitter at KK Dumez, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And I have a, I'm also on Facebook. I have a, a an author page on Facebook, Kristen Cobus Dumay. And that's, that's a great community. Lots of people kind of hang out there and we have lots of great discussions. And then yes, kristendumay.com is my website and most of the things that I write end up there. Thank you for, so much for joining the Protestants and Politics podcast. Thank you. 
This episode was recorded on August 13th of 2020. To sign up for the Protestants and Politics newsletter, go to my website, mattnasworth.com slash newsletter. That's N-A-P-P-N-A-Z-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash newsletter. Thank you.